the way I think about grit and determination is, one, are you putting yourself in your zone of discomfort? And when you get it wrong, do you get back up, learn something from it, and get back and swing again and try again and try again and try again? Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Juven. It's always fun to talk shop and talk about the industry. I am going to read your background back to you. So I start all these shows by reading my guest background back to them, and please fill in any blanks that I missed. Okay. You got your BS in industrial engineering from Auburn, graduated magna cum laude. Then you went to be a consultant at Accenture. You spent about a year doing that. You then went on to be a senior manager for financial planning and analysis at Boston Market, which is Boston Market still around? I used to love the chicken carvers there. Anyway, for four years, which, okay, I see in my notes now, was acquired by McDonald's. Then you went to become the senior director of commercial solutions at Kinko's for five years. Then you went to Monster, not to be confused with the energy drink, but the job site, right? Yeah. And you spent five years doing that. You started as the SVP of sales operations. Then you moved into SVP of sales. And then you became the European SVP, chief representative officer for China, et cetera, et cetera. Then you went to Yahoo, spent three years at Yahoo, started as the VP of sales and GM for small business and recruiting advertisement. And then you went on to be the VP of global advertiser partnerships, then went on to Branch O. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, Branch Out. Yeah, Branch Out. Okay. That's Canadian pronunciation, Branch O. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's one way to pronounce it. And you were the chief marketing and sales officer there. And you spent two years doing that. And then you're on a board, Peer Index. And currently today, as of seven years ago, you are the president of field operations and CRO of Cloudflare. I feel old. When you go back and describe all those things from like, you know, almost three decades ago, I feel old, but I feel old, but I feel young today. So I've got energy. You know, that's a common reaction. And I'm laughing because most of the guests say that. And I feel like you're probably at the fourth inning of your career. And so <laughs> let's give it another 20 years. And when we do this again, oh. and you have, you have another run at it, then we can start to feel old. Not to mention you were named one of the top 100 Global Sales Leader by Modern Sales Magazine. Is there anything that I missed in that illustrious background? Chief bottle washer. Uh, I'll take out the trash. It all sounds very fancy. I think it's, I don't think it's as fancy as all that stuff sounds. Yeah, you know, I think we should on our LinkedIn's have our first couple of jobs. So like I had a LinkedIn in the early <laughs> days and I didn't have any other job experience. And so I put sandwich artisan because I worked at Subway. And then I put bag boy because I was a bag boy at Vaughn's. And those are the jobs that teach you how to do this job pretty well because it realizes the importance of like, I got to go work hard. It's often like the alternatives, right? I don't know exactly what I want to do, but I know that I don't want to do this. Exactly. And there's some value in that, especially early in your career. Yeah, fear is a hell of a motivator and running away from that fear is uh, definitely something that worked for me. So I want to talk about a couple things with you, specifically in the context of Cloudflare. I'm not sure... Many people have heard of this business, but it has an $11 billion market cap. It's doing, what, over three, $400 million of revenue. Tell us more about Cloudflare, if you could. Yeah, well, we've been around 10 years, and the premise is that the internet was built on a set of protocols, and we think that in context, the protocols have aged. If you take sort of a funny point of view, when Al Gore wrote the internet years ago, he didn't have the contemporary uses in mind. And as you watch all the businesses, especially now, migrate workers to home, use the internet as the network to connect their employees and to connect with their users around the world, the internet was not really designed with security in mind. It wasn't really designed with performance in mind. And the founders had the foresight 10 years ago this year to really create a better internet and help to build a better internet with our company. And that's what we do. So if you are using a network to connect out to users and employees and vendors, et cetera, there's a better way than just using the clear internet. It's not as secure. It's not as private. It's not really built for the modern expectations of reliability. And I think that 
that's really where Cloudflare fits. We have a big mandate. And that's really the zeitgeist for the company. We sit in front of a significant part of the internet. And we like to say we're, we're just getting started. It certainly feels that way. What percentage, if you know the answer to this, of internet traffic goes through Cloudflare? I don't even know if that's the right way to ask the question. Yeah, it's more than 10% of the web traffic. So more than 10% of all web traffic hits Cloudflare. But we're very proud of the important role that Cloudflare plays in the internet today. And we, we take that very seriously. Is it true that it was founded in 09 out of a Harvard Business School competition? Is that right? Yeah, the two founders are really the ones to talk about the founding of the company, but they were classmates at Harvard. Matthew had been working on an idea. He and Michelle linked up and put pen to paper and you know won the business case competition. And they knew they had a real business and they've done a great job of shepherding it to where it is now. And they're still very engaged. And it's largely followed the outline they had in the original business case. So to their credit, this thing had legs early on and they saw it. Yeah, I mean, look, 400 million of revenue later, I'd say they have a pretty real business. So you joined the company, what, three or four years into its founding? Is that approximately right? Yeah, roughly three years. And when you were there, did you get hired as the CRO? What was your initial job? And then give us context on like how many people were at the company when you were there? How many people were in the sales organization? How much revenue? That kind of thing. Yeah, well, we were about 50 people. And the joke is the phone rang a lot. And there was one person that was hired prior to my joining it. It convinced the company that they needed solutions engineers. That's Trey Gwynn. And he has a funny story. You, you should actually have Trey at some point tell his story of how he got involved with the company. But he basically came and worked for free for a while and said, you don't know what a solutions engineer is, but let me show you what that is and how we create a better relationship with customers by working with them to solve their problems. And you know, Trey went through this. He offered a free period. And at the end, they said, that's great. We think we need solutions engineering now. Now we want to go interview people. And he's like, I, just, I just showed you what this looked like. So anyway, Trey preceded me and there was another person, Dean Riskus, and the phone rang a lot. There were a lot of customers that needed what we had. And that was really the zeitgeist. So I was hired in the customer development department and everybody was hired in the customer development department in the early days as the head of sales to try to take what was really embryonic as it relates to the monetization strategy. Largely, it was driven by people showing up, swiping a credit card, going on a monthly plan. But then there were customers that needed other features and they needed this thing called an SLA and they wanted people to help them. And it was very early days. And we were doing things that didn't scale in the beginning to prove that there was a real business there. Do you remember how much revenue you guys were doing at that time? Like sub a million? In the prior year, it was sort of measured in low single digit millions. Yeah, okay. And your background has nothing to do with Cloudflare, really. Tell me more about what was the process of getting over there? How'd you find out about it? Were you scared to death of like, this is a 50-person company? What's going on? Because admittedly, your background is actually larger organizations. And, and a lot of consumer. And a lot of consumer. And so if I was them and I looked at Chris's resume coming in, I probably would have said, you're not the right fit. And I would have said that because, again, your consumer background, the, I put in air quotes, big company guy, doesn't understand the like scrappiness. So how did that go? It's interesting. I don't know the full background. I think the beauty is you don't always want to know all the feedback when you're getting to know a company. Like, what do they really think of you the first time, the second time, the third time? I don't think I want to know all of it. It's like being able to go through the dating log early in your life. I've been married for 27 years. So that's a distant memory. But at Cloudflare, I don't think I was their first call. The company was small. Michelle, who's one of the co-founders, I think she was leading search along with a couple of board members. And my background, I was not a dyed-in-the-wool internet networking hardware Cisco. That was not my background. I'd been working with different business models on how people take advantage of the internet to either create a two-sided marketplace, a media-driven business, subscription-driven businesses. Like That's what I've been doing. And I think that Cloudflare, in sort of true Cloudflare fashion, they were like, let's challenge all the assumptions. Maybe a traditional 
hardware Cisco executive is not the right one. And I suspect that they probably talked to some. They had plenty of people that saw the early writing on the wall with Cloudflare. I remember the first time Michelle reached out through a mutual acquaintance, I couldn't spell CDN or DNS. I thought I knew how the internet worked. Turns out I didn't. I'd been around it for a couple of decades and thought that while I am an engineer in sort of training and background, I went to school in engineering, I'm not a network engineer, which means that it doesn't really count. And so my early days with Cloudflare were getting to understand how the technology works and the founding team and the people that I met early on, they were very gracious with their time and they were they took it slow and spoon-fed, here's the OSI model and here's how it, the handshakes and the connections and the delivery of bits around the world, here's how it works. And it, they were very slow and gracious in the beginning. I paid attention, I cared about it. I understood the use cases. I understood what the other side of it, so the people that were using it to create a deeper connection with their users, driving a more resilient experience. What does 500 milliseconds mean in terms of a transaction or a checkout experience? How do the ad delivery models work? So I understood what the users were trying to drive with their community of users meaning the buyers of Cloudflare service. But admittedly, it took me a while to learn really how delivery works, what the core tenets of security are inside of the Cloudflare context, inside of the industry context. Fast forward seven years, I've paid attention. I've picked up a lot. I still have a lot to learn. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of Cloudflare. You don't have to know exactly how the internet works when you come and join our team, but you need to show up and wear loose clothing and you need to dedicate yourself to learning and staying abreast. And I think that we hire for gray matter and interest. And I like to think that I've paid attention, I've had an interest, and I continue to find this space really interesting, whether that's on the technology side or on the policy side. And I think that the role that we play on the internet is a really important one. And there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. And it focuses the mind. So you started there, 50-ish employees, maybe a couple of people on the sales team, if that. It was a self-service business. So at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of sales going on in terms of people-oriented sales, right. if you will. So what, you guys have 1,500-ish employees? Yeah, that's about right. And how many folks are in your organization? About half. About half. I don't think people understand how rare it is. And we have the privilege of talking to these people quite often on this show. But going from like a couple million in revenue and 50 people to this scale is absolutely phenomenal. Congratulations. And it takes a really unique person to be able to scale with the company in that way. So it's really amazing. Okay, so speaking of the early days, I think the way that Cloudflare's go-to-market has evolved is fascinating. And I want to spend some time talking to you about it. And who better, considering you've seen it from the inception till now. In the early days, Cloudflare, and again, like, tell me if this is wrong, but was very bottoms up. And what I mean by that was that the pricing model was free, if I'm not mistaken, or basically free. It was developer-focused, self-serve, community content driven, bottoms-up type stuff. Tell me more about that. Is that right? Yeah. I, the tenants early on, if you zoom out for a moment, when you're creating a network-based service, all the services around DNS and CDN and firewalls, and those were typically boxes at the time. And the tech and media royalty, they had those services. So if you're an upstart, you're probably not going to go in and dislodge them. So we started at the low end. And we created a service that was really high quality and the best deal on the internet. And we have a free service. We had a free service back then, and we will always have a free service. And you know, we stretched the product and the service delivery and the customers that we use, we stretched them. Some companies sort of migrate away from the low end. We didn't. We think about stretching it to be able to fit all of the needs. And in the early days, when you're providing service, the very, very early days, it's not a great service. It may be great in the context of what the alternatives are. And one of the stats that I recall in the early, early days, when we had new customers coming to us, especially at the low end of the market, the small to mid-sized business, 
5% had a service already, right? One in 20 was using something and we were displacing it, which means the 95% was, hey, it's the first time I'm getting any of these services. And when you're providing service at that level, like the enthusiasm is really high. And then those folks, they tell people, the community has been behind us from the early days. We care about the early community members. We care about the people that took a risk on us in the early days and have stuck with us and have told their friends and have gone from one company to another. We care about what we're doing. The tenure that we have on the team at the engineering side and on the sales side is a long tenure. We've cared about the community from the early days and still do and care about the use cases. And the same people that were working at the kernel on solving the problems around security, solving the problems around delivery, doing it in a way that's high speed, those people are still here. And the free service has become incredibly good. And the services that are above that, including you know our premium, but still month to month, pay-as-you-go, and then also the contracted services, and then also the services that really large Fortune 500 companies use. We are really proud of the service model, and the go-to-market motion has evolved. It's stretched. And like I said, we're not abandoned any part of that market. We've stretched to fit. What percentage, out of curiosity, of Cloudflare users are paying? Do you know? Approximately. Mm. What I'd rather say is if you're interested in those stats, you should go to our investor relations page. Those are always current and updated. And rather than me tell you something that might be outdated. Fair enough. But approximately, like, are we talking half of Cloudflare users are not paying 10%? What ballpark? And again, if you don't want to approximate, I get it. We're a freemium model, right? We start off with a free service. And I think that the distinction that I would make is oftentimes a freemium service means it's a free trial, which means it expires. We don't have that. We have a, you start using us for free, you can stay on the free plan forever. And that is a large percentage of our users end up staying in that free. And we're happy to have that. As a public company, we disclose the number of paying customers. And then we also disclose the paying customers that are spending more than $100,000. And it's sort of in the tens of thousands that are in the paying customer zone. And it's you know measured in hundreds that are above $100,000. But I would point you back over to the, the IR website to get the okay, current Okay, fair enough. I'll put it in the show notes. And I want to talk about the large customer piece as well, because I think it's really interesting. So back to the early days a little bit. I think initially Cloudflare operated on kind of a, a freemium model. It was free or, you know, you could basically pay 20 bucks a month for the paid tier, right? And I think maybe that was preceded you or around the time when you were first there. And in those days, and maybe that still remained true, some of the reading that I did was that one of the really important things that you did from a go-to-market perspective around lead generation was it's one thing to offer the product for free. But if people don't know about it, it doesn't matter. And so I think mm. what Cloudflare did a really excellent job of in the early days was kind of this community and content-driven approach. Because the idea was, who's going to be using this if it's free? Developers. And so how do we access the minds and hearts of developers? It's through this content-driven strategy. Right, wrong, or can you share any more about that? I think that this content-driven method technique if you think about it, if you go and show up to somebody's website, it's an experience that serves a lot of people. And it often will be dumbed down to sort of the least common denominator in a way that anybody can show up and get a sense for what you do. And there's a place for that. If you look at our blog, now there are different flavors of blogs. If you look at ours- I looked at it. I had no idea what I was reading. <laughs> well, <laughs> I would encourage you like- What's really interesting is if you want to know the company, go back to blog post number one. It'll take you a little while to click back, back page. But you get back to blog post number one and then click forward is a fascinating read on the company. And why is that? One, it's super transparent. It's one of our core values. And it's one that you'll see us model consistently as we have hyper transparency into why we've made certain decisions when we have screwed up, we own up to it and we share all the facts and figures around what we've learned as part of that process. It gives insight into why we've made architectural decisions, who joined at what point in time, although it's less about that. And that is a very 
technical. It's not written by, you know, just the marketing department with a content generation that's good for Legion. It's written by engineers for engineers. And it that is, I think, the spirit of one, it's the spirit of our company. Two, it's the spirit of we want to connect with those that are solving problems. And we put the people right in line that, hey, they're developing the solutions. And I there's a level of authenticity that happens, and it's really hard to fabricate it. We don't fabricate it. These are real engineers talking about their work. When you have an engineer talking to an engineer about their work, like that's where the magic happens. And people are really good. The radars on, is this authentic or is this just content being written for the sake of getting content to index high in SEO? People's radar is really tuned and we take that very seriously and our blog is probably the best lens into who we are. And it's a really good lens for people to look into our solutions to see if they're a good fit for the problems they're trying to solve. Yeah, it makes total sense. I see what's going on with your stock and I'm trying to understand why that's going on because it's absolutely going gangbusters. And so before this interview, I was asking like the smartest friends that I have, like what the hell by the way, like I come from a security background and I have no idea how and what the hell is going on. And so I asked him, I looked at the blog and I'm like, dude, what is this company doing? And he referenced the blog and he just said, these are some of the smartest engineers that actually have the most transparent way in the way that they engineer things and then talk about it that I've ever seen in a company. I would really encourage you to include some of them in this series you're doing. I think they're some of the smartest people. The tenure is really long. They care deeply about the projects that they're working on and the point of view we've taken in trying to fix some of the things that don't really work well. And they're really interesting people. So I, I would encourage you to include them. Fair enough. So then what ended up happening as I like kind of go through the history here is that you create this really kick-ass content-driven strategy that enables this freemium model. Right. And again, maybe it's an oversimplification. Like, I know that's not the only thing. The phones, to your point, were already ringing independent of the content <laughs> that you were distributing. No, I think it was directly related. We wrote a blog, and you should have some of the early folks talk about what the genesis of the blog was. I wasn't here, so I can't tell you exactly what was behind it, other than like a little bit of hello world. Hey, we're here, and this is what we're working on. But it was not a marketing-driven... There actually was, probably was nobody here. In fact, I know there was nobody here that had marketing in their title or really even had marketing in their bones, except for you know the founders. They're great thought leaders. And I think that that really is what probably came through in the blog. But ultimately, we've left the blog to its own thing. It, it has its own spirit. It lives on. And oh, by the way, there's no buy now on the blog. And it is really like technical folks talking about their work to technical buyers. And that has largely been, it's not changed. So that, then there's the whole, the website and how do you organize content? And there's also a knowledge base, which is another way. And I would say that's probably where you know the problems that customers are experiencing using any number of services, our knowledge base is really it's an extension of how people have learned about Cloudflare. So you're right. There are definitely these different content elements, but the authenticity and not turning it into a something that is really SEO-driven, I think, is at the, at the heart of why it's been so successful. Absolutely. And I think what ends up then happening, taking it one step further, is that you create this really authentic voice that basically represents your brand. Your brand happens to be solving insanely technical, complex challenges for insanely technical people. And so you're speaking to that buyer, if you will, or you're really your end consumer, That's right. right? So then what ends up happening? What ends up happening is those people can feel that authenticity and they share it, right? So they share it to others. And when you target such a narrow market, if you will, oh, like this voice is so specific towards a certain set of people, then there's a community that just kind of arises from that where naturally they have other people at other firms working on the same sets of problems. So very quickly, you're speaking their language when others may have not. And so that gets shared and it kind of creates this really nice redistribution flywheel of content that speaks so authentically to your brand, which is solving highly technical problems. Is that fair? That's right. 
Yeah, you captured it well. So, okay. Then some really important tailwinds happen as they tend to always do with companies that grow like you did. So I'm going to narrow it down to like two or three things, but- I can't wait to learn. I'm ready. Like, what's the synthesis? What were some strokes of luck here? (laughs) The first was that IoT started happening. So there was all of these devices that were being connected to the internet in a way that never had been done before. At the time, who would have freaking thought that your refrigerator would be talking to, I still don't understand why my refrigerator talks to the internet. I don't don't understand the practicality of it, but nonetheless, it was happening. And a bunch of other things were talking to the internet. And some of these devices weren't just refrigerators. They were things in hospitals. They were things that actually Mm. really mattered what was being transmitted. Sure. And as a part of that, it created security vulnerabilities and there was more DDoS attacks and there's just things that started to happen as a result of all of these IoT devices. Proliferation of devices. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that was one. The second was that kind of cryptocurrencies started to become a little bit vogue mm-hmm. and enabled a new form of ransomware, which made a specific type of DDoS attack. And I'll let you explain what DDoS is, but a specific type of DDoS attack much more prevalent. Is that fair as well? I think that both of the things that you described, they are trends that drive an importance of having services to wrap around applications and experiences that you care about. There's one more I want to say. And the third was, and you mentioned it earlier, people started to realize that 500 milliseconds matters. And Mm. Google released, and I, I don't know what I'm really talking about here, but like a Panda update that basically showed it taking page loading times into account for search rankings. And so the longer it took to load your website, when someone would click on it from Google, if it took too long, it would get to the second page of search. So all of a sudden, you saw a really tight correlation between people hitting your website and business outcomes to how long it takes. And again, enter Cloudflare. So those are like a couple of things, again, through my research that I saw, you know, you hire a stud in Chris, he brings on some salespeople, the phones won't stop ringing. And then you do this bottoms up technical kind of like groundswell. And then the market starts to play nice. And there's some really interesting tailwinds that start to make Cloudflare pretty important in the minds of the consumer. Mm. First of all, I don't think that anybody cared if I showed up at Cloudflare. Um, (laughs) I don't think the market took any notice. I often say we've steered the company into some really deep and rich waters. And if you go all the way back, I think it's roughly seven years. I might have that wrong. You should check. But this whole Prism and Snowden at the time, I think that the whole notion of sort of security and privacy was probably below the surface for most people. And that came up in importance in consumers' minds and also in those that are providing services to consumers. So application owners, developers. So the whole security awareness came up. The nature of large attacks taking experiences, websites, applications offline. The fact that you could do that, and some of that is like, Why did those things happen? Some of those were for commercial gains. Some of those were for political gains. Some of those were just because somebody was bored in their bedroom at night. That's DDoS, right? Can you explain what that is? Because it's kind of crazy. We have a great blog post on it. And a DDoS attack is distributed denial of service. And what that means is you point a lot of traffic to an application and the application just cannot handle the load. It topples over. So the service itself goes offline. That it's most simple, like the analogy that Trey, right, our original solutions and New Year's, like it's like calling the pizza place and overwhelming them, and you do it for malicious means. Like they're so backed up they can't answer the phone, and as a result, nobody can order pizzas. That's the analog that I would describe. But DDoS attacks 10 years ago, it was really expensive and it was hard to get enough volume against a property or against a website. But if you watch all the infected devices, like what happens when malware gets onto a computer that gets taken over and oftentimes it will get used in what's called a botnet. It will get used as a means to wake up in the middle of the night and start sending requests to this website when somebody behind the scenes is controlling it. So the rise of botnets was something that was happening 
certainly five, 10 years ago. And they continue to be used today, but it was becoming front page news, right? The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the BBC was talking about it, all the papers and sort of the, the markets around the world that matter. Like DDoS was something that people were talking about. And Cloudflare was fortunate enough to have people trust us to stop these attacks. And when the largest attacks were being talked about in the media, we were often right there being the ones that solved the problem. So hard problem, we were solving it because of the way our network was architected and the way our service was architected. We naturally stopped DDoS attacks in a way that is better than a traditional service. And I'm happy to go down the rat hole of what a DDoS attack is and how do we stop it. But just suffice it to say, we're really good at it and always have been. And as that became an attack vector that was used a lot, it was novel, it was written about, it's really harmful to those that are under a DDoS attack, it's harmful to their business, it's harmful to their users. And we were fortunate that we were stopping it and we we're very good at it. So we were fortunate enough to get recognized for that. And a lot of the, the media talked about us, which is another example of authentic content. They were real stories. These things happen. And then... Something really interesting proliferates around the strategy. And again, you have been there for seven years. I did a few hours of research. So tell me what I'm missing here. But by going bottoms up, what ended up happening is you had a large volume of customers. And what I mean by that is there's a bunch of users. And the beauty about that, even if they weren't necessarily paying, was that you saw a lot of things happening. And you had competitors who were doing this for larger enterprises. And while they may have had more revenue or whatever, they weren't seeing as much as Cloudflare was. And in this business, in specifically, the more you see, the more powerful the platform becomes because you can be more preventative by understanding what the hell is going on and seeing what happened to one customer or user, you can then reapply to prevent to happen to another. And so... What ended up happening is this really broad distributed network of consumers and customers ended up paying off because you've got this kind of network effect from the bottoms up of seeing a lot. Your perspective was really broad, which then informed making the product better, right? It's really like any startup in a different way. Like the more people you have using the damn thing, the more they're going to bang on it and just make it better. And that's kind of what started to happen for you. And so... Then I love this history lesson. I'm learning. <laughs> Just oh, it man. down for me. <laughs> Let me tell you, I am in no position to give any lessons on anything. But it's fascinating. Like as I read through this, I was just so interested. And so all of a sudden, you had credibility that others did not because now you have all this access to information and things that threats and whatever that were going on. So large enterprises started to take notice and they thought, huh. These guys and gals are seeing more than others. And so you started to build this interesting sense of credibility that other companies did not, i.e., if Google was another one of your competitors' customers, right, Google wasn't going to share the things that happened to them with Yahoo. And so they actually don't get the network effect of, okay, if you're a small shop and you don't really have a security team, you don't really care if you share that information back to Cloudflare. And so that ended up happening. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I would say that there was an analogy used a long time ago, like a community watch, where the more people that are engaged, the more effective the service is. Yeah, I'm in Santa Cruz right now, and if I look around, the more people that are aware at night that you know your bike might get ripped off, more eyes on it, the less likely it is that somebody's going to walk away with it. And Cloudflare was, in the early days as we referenced, it was a lot of small entities, blogs, small services, using it around the world. And the take rate, if you will, meaning the adoption of the service was really high at the low end of the market. And that alone does not necessarily get a large financial institution to call you and say, hey, I've got this problem. But what it was interesting is oftentimes when an attack is being designed and created by somebody who does these things, you know, whatever it is, somebody who's involved in creating a new vector to take advantage of somebody on the internet, it'll often be designed and tweaked at the low end, right? They'll try it on other blogs. They'll try it on 
mom and pop shops to see if it works and they'll refine it. And then it gets sort of consistently refined. And then it's like weapons grade that you can use on a large entity. And so if you're a service like Cloudflare, we actually provide a lot of the services for the ones that are like tested against them and these little tiny tweaks. It's not been weaponized yet, but we're like, oh, we've seen this attack here and here around the world. So by the time that it's become weapons grade and somebody's trying to use it against the large financial services, we're like, oh, we know that signature. You know, that's the XYZ attack. And yeah, we've already inoculated our network. Like nobody that's using Cloudflare is going to get taken down by that. That is different than a traditional service vendor that only services the upper end and sees the attacks late. So this notion of zero day when attack comes out, now they're reeling with, well, we haven't seen this before. Like nobody's attacked this large bank or nobody's attacked this government before. We're on our heels and trying to stop it. Whereas since we've seen these things at the low end, we've already in effect patched anybody using our network and they won't be vulnerable to that. And that is unique to providing service at the low end of the market. And that is not a typical part of the business model or a part of the service delivery model for traditional enterprise companies. And I think that's one of our superpowers is the ability to see general use across the internet. And it's it's something that we take a lot of responsibility and that provides real value to everybody using the service. And it's a competitive moat for your business, which is kind of nice. That too. <laughs> so to your comment earlier about enterprise customers, and I did look at some of the filings for Cloudflare. And so a statistic here, and I want to bring this back to like, what does this mean for you? Cloudflare had almost 200-ish enterprise customers at the beginning of 2019. And enterprise is defined by spend of $100,000 of an annual contract or more. And by the end of the year, it was up to 550 enterprise customers. And so you started from this lower end of the market, if you will, and then go up into your deal size, into your customer size, et cetera. So for you, kind of being there the whole way through, I guess the question for me is, as you go up market, what were some of the challenges? What are some of the considerations structurally and organizationally that were really tricky that you had to really think through and that you had to solve for as you started to go through this kind of enterprise bout at Cloudflare that was admittedly probably a very different muscle that the organization just wasn't used to? So if I think about this whole notion of change management, which is part of what you're asking, there's hard and fast change management where you're going to shock the system and you're going to try to reorient people. But I've been here long enough where if I look back, it was pretty incremental. We started off with something as simple as we are selling one contract customer per week. And the first couple of quarters, we weren't getting to one a week. We're like, let's just get to one contract customer per week. But you're doing multiples of that in terms of people that are showing up and swiping a credit card. So it's a sort of a progression. We're adding certain customer types. We're adding use cases that we haven't seen before. We're adding requirements, but we're not doing it in a way where we're going to shift the entire business model from pay-as-you-go to all contract or small to large. It was sort of by degrees. And the great thing about engineers, they can follow trends. So as you're incrementally adding certain customers and use cases that are maybe not like the others, you do it in a way that's respectful of we're not moving the business and moving away from the low end. We are adding customer types and use cases. And this notion of what I was describing earlier, which is like stretching to fit, we're not moving wholesale. So the change management along the way was pretty reasonable and rational and you know, it wasn't by fiat. It wasn't like, hey, we're going to do yep. this today. It was, hey, these are the things we have to solve for over time. And the founders were very good at giving latitude where appropriate and also providing feedback yep. where, hey, that's not consistent with the company that we're building. And it's different. If I were had been in my job for maybe a year and a half, I wouldn't have that context. But it's all been on my watch. And I had not just myself, the great team that we have around the company on the sales and marketing side, and also on the engineering and the R&D side and the G&A. Like, everybody is building the company brick by brick. People show up, they work hard. So I would say it's been a layered effect of optimizations along the way and new use cases that we've solved for. And I think that this mesh, this notion of like a really strong fabric is because we've taken the time 
at each turn. Well, you know, the product doesn't work for this customer for this reason. They have thousands of websites to manage and they can't go in and click a button every time to make a change. They need to be able to do, you know, what's called a wildcard proxy. So for star dot, for all of these, make this change. Sounds like a tiny thing. Required engineering work. It required us to put it on the plan in the right way. It required us to monetize it the right way, to service it. And we have just lots and lots of examples where it's sort of by increments, but we paid attention to every single decision. And I think as a result, one, it was digestible. And two, it's a pretty strong mesh. And these things have had time to you know, digest and settle. So I'm not sure if that gets the spirit of what you were asking. No, it, but- it absolutely does. And maybe if you can indulge me to take this one step further, as a part of the change management, people are a huge part of that. And as you go up market, and not only as you're starting to sell into larger customers, but as the organization starts to grow up, does the DNA of the person, people, sales ladies that you're hiring on the team, does that change? How do you think about that? Or has that changed? I would say some things have not changed. The orientation around caring about the products and the use cases and being dedicated to learning that technology has not changed. And that's been since day zero in building out the go-to-market muscle. Other things have changed. In the beginning, we were when we didn't have all the systems, tools, processes figured out, we had team goals. And we hired people that were oriented to a team goal. It's not the traditional enterprise, what's my number? So what do you mean team goal? Literally, like I was describing this, let's get to a one deal per week. When I showed up, we were doing like, one deal every other week. Hey, our goal is to get to one deal per week for this quarter. Here's the average size. Our goal as a result is X. And we're all in this together. So there was no individual quota. It was a team quota. And I was yoked to that along with the team. And that was different. That is not an enterprise. What's my quota? I'm an individual contributor. What are the accelerators? And where's my territory? And get out of my way. Like We were not like that. And then at like 15 people on the team, it broke. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't work. Team goals don't work anymore. Part of that is because we have people around the world. Part of it is, is that person pulling their weight? I don't think they are. You start to get into the dynamics of team. So take that little micro change, fast forward it to the evolution of Cloudflare. We look a lot like other organizations as it relates to structure mm. and individual quotas mm-hmm. and accelerators and territories is a little bit different. We're still trying to be creative with territories. And if somebody comes in with a strong point of view on, hey, I love gaming. I really want to work with gaming customers. I speak gaming technology. Like, great, let's create a territory for you that looks like gaming. As compared to we have a gaming cat territory, let's find somebody to fit it in. Like that's something we've evolved over time. But if you look at our sellers that are working with the Fortune 100, the Fortune 500, they have worked with them before. And they have relationships and not all of them, but some of them have come in and said, oh, I know these 10 people and they can very easily identify projects. Others have been with us since the early days and are now at that point in their career and they're working with the largest entities. So I think that the team composition has been something that I think we're really proud of the orientation to a team from the very early days and how that has manifested throughout the structure and the way we've built the business. We often get the feedback during the process when people get to know us and they're interviewing to come work here. No, by the way, we're hiring. We're looking for good people, especially if this resonates. If somebody is like, hey, I'm interested in the use case. I care about what you're working on. Those things you have to screen for. Is there enough gray matter to learn the product? Then what people come to think, people are really nice. They help me. They're kind. They're not overly aggressive. That's the kind of person that we're looking for. And somebody that has the ambition to do good work, but not at the expense of their teammates. Yeah, that makes sense. And to riff on that for a second, you mentioned earlier, you hire in terms of the DNA of the team, like you want to hire for gray matter and interest. And you said, show up and wear loose clothes. So (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Can you tell me more about that profile? Like, what is it about that that you find so interesting or a good predictor of success at Cloudflare? We are working with technical buyers, and the problems that they're solving are significant. 
and we have a technical product. That's a certain profile of skills and competencies to be able to do that well. We do not require those to be resident at day one. So you're looking for proxies that will get you into that zone. So can they learn things fast? And that is often a function of, do they have an interest in the thing? So it's very common for us to give homework to people and say, hey, have you loaded Cloudflare on a website? And oftentimes the answer is no. We're like, go do that and then come back and tell me what you thought. And it's testing for one, are you just looking for a hot company and you're not willing to put the work in? Because that screens people out. Two, did you get like a little spark of what the product is? And is it really, is it interesting to you? And if those conditions are met, we usually find people will invest themselves in learning all the advanced features and sort of falling down the, the rabbit hole with us and getting excited about it. Because the technology and the use cases, they move fast. So it's impossible for us to give you a body of knowledge up front that will last the tenure at Cloudflare. Because the products move, the use cases move, the internet, if you're using it as your network, the problems that we had years ago are different than the problem that everybody's dealing with in the pandemic right now. So you have to find this sort of a willingness to invest oneself and absorb content and learn. And that's the gray matter and the interest I'm referring to. Then the other profiles around, now where are you in the craft of working with customers and creating win-win scenarios and great outcomes? If you're early in your career and early in the knowledge and the skills along that, that spectrum, great. How do we link you up with the right internal manager that's going to help build those skills out? If you're late in that, but what you're really looking for is somebody that can help you champion new features that you know this customer set is going to demand, well, how do we orient you with the right leadership that is going to be a great advocate for your customer set with product and has great relationships with product? So we try to tailor where people are on those different dimensions And we try to be really thoughtful around hooking them up inside the organization with the right spot. Last question before we wrap it up. Unfortunately, we have to. I want to be respectful of your time. Because it is so technical to your point and because you're not necessarily, you're hiring more for innate qualities in someone rather than understanding four-letter acronyms like DDoS. At first, how much investment has your team and do you guys think about on onboarding and training and success and the SE organization, which you've brought up a few times, how much investment, I have to imagine it's a lot, goes into here's the space, here's what we do. We're going to train you up to be really good and thoughtful about it. There is an investment that we make in people. And there's a compressed period of time up front where we try to put folks through a boot camp and give them the basics. I would say that the balance of the investment is really around two vectors. One, how much is the person going to invest in their spare time? Right? Are they going to subscribe to a blog? Are they going to stay aware around sort of industry trends and talk about it with their friends and hang out with people that are also looking for these, you know, sharing content that is consistent with that? That's sort of one. And that is hard for me to quantify mm-hmm. the outside sort of self-investment. So that's one vector, but we hire people that sort of have that spirit. The other, it's more representative of a company like ours that has incredible amount of surface area with the product. We started off with a lot of infrastructure product. We moved into products that are more oriented around securing and enabling great experiences for team members and distributed users around the world. We have a platform that It's a serverless platform. So where do you run code out close to the users, not back at some central area, which is very different than the other areas I described? How do you get at the core networking, transferring bits between remote offices or transferring bits between your infrastructure that's distributed? Like those to us, our product fits across all of that. So how do you enable the organization as we continue to increase the surface area of the products? That's another investment that we make, and that is ongoing as we build out the capabilities of our platform. It's part of the business model to invest in keeping your people up to speed on what we can do, what the industry requires, what the competitors do, and where that's all going. So you're right. It's a very astute observation that 
enablement is a key part of our business. I would say it's in the DNA because we've been building more product and stretching it to go up market. It's so resonant in what we're doing that we don't see it as, well, here's the specific investment enablement. It's just one of those, we know we do a lot of it and we will continue to do so for a long time. Makes total sense and a great place for us to leave it. In conclusion, I asked the same questions. First one, what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? Oh gosh, that's a good question. Uh, and you told me you were going to ask it. And it's the, I, only so thing I, it's my... the only thing I told you I was going to ask. <laughs> I, gave, I gave you one oh. prep question, which was, I'm going to ask this. That's all I gave you. <laughs> I would say the narrow lens that I would apply is in one's career, if you do it right, you're going to stretch yourself into situations you've not been in before. And when you're stretched, if you do it right, you will not bat a thousand. Right? You will not get every one of those right. So the way I think about grit and determination is, one, are you putting yourself in your zone of discomfort? And when you get it wrong, do you get back up, learn something from it, and get back and swing again and try again and try again and try again? I'm watching the Tour de France a lot right now because like, what else are you going to do during the pandemic? And the grit that somebody shows where they get completely blown up, they're past their limit, the field leaves them, and they claw their way back. Like they never give up. I think about the determination aspect of grit. And I think when we're looking for people and I'm looking for people that I admire, it's the ability to put yourself in hard situations, learn something from it, get back up and try again, get back and try again. When you asked me about grit, that's what came to mind. So having not prepped for it, that was a pretty good answer. (laughs) You mentioned you're hiring. If someone hears this and they want to come work for you or Cloudflare, how do they get a hold of you? What are you hiring for, et cetera? Well, we're hiring for all the go-to-market functions from the low end of the market to the high end of the market. We have all of the roles posted on the website, so cloudflare.com. And if I can be helpful in being a champion and sort of sponsoring somebody through the process, which I do a lot, reach out to me on LinkedIn. That tool is great. I have a lot of respect for that company. And let's use that as the, the right mechanism. And yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Chris, thank you for your time, man. Yeah, thanks, Jubin. Take care. Thank you, folks, for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.